0: today's podcast, we have such an explosive and, I mean, why am I even talking like this? What, but anyway, anywho, anyhow, we have such an amazing speaker, thinker, uh, Zach Mills. Uh, I mean, I can't even say enough about this guy. Uh, he was at Vanderbilt Divinity School uh, with me uh, my first year there. Uh, we worked on a project together. He uh, is a great guy. I mean... I've never heard anyone who could truly um, stand in certain spaces, may that be the pulpit, um, in a, in a lecture hall and really spew out so much information um That will really penetrate your heart And so hopefully you gain some insight To what he has to say And and all the things that we talk about today Unfortunately, uh, you won't hear me on this podcast Uh, I am actually in Zach's hometown uh, of Chicago Working and so uh, Tune in man, lock in It's about to be a great conversation anytime Eric And Nikki's there, it's always going to be crazy You're probably going to miss my crazy uh, Antics, but hey, it's going to be a good conversation I'm excited that you're listening to the Wolves Podcast
1: Welcome to another episode of the Wills Podcast. I am Eric Brown. I'm Nikki Tolley. We do have a good show for you today. Before we start the show, I want to go ahead and kind of give a little commentary about how I'm feeling right now. Um, of course, you know, when we record these shows, we record them a little earlier. And so, um, really, this uh, episode is taking place uh, at the time that the uh, Waffle House shooting happened uh, today. Uh, by the time you hear it, should be Thursday, but for us today, it is Sunday. Um, a little bothered by what happened today. One um, a gentleman comes up, and uh, no, I don't want to call him a gentleman. I'm going to call him exactly what he is, a terrorist. A terrorist came into a Waffle House around 3 a.m. on, on Sunday morning and shot up a Waffle House in Antioch. Um, a gentleman named James Shaw Jr. Um, stopped more people from being killed than what were already were killed. Uh, four people lost their lives uh, because of this event. Um, I know James. I know his family. Uh, I, more than my thoughts and prayers, I'm really more concerned about the action that should take place after this situation happened, and I'm really bothered by it. It really bothered me. I know James has a daughter, Brooklyn. <coughs> is, um a four-year-old girl. She had the possibility of losing her father, but there are other uh, people that did lose their life. Uh, so, we want to make sure that we think about uh, Torian Sanderlin. He was 29 years old. He was a boy of the restaurant. He was killed outside. Uh, Joe R. Perez also was a, um, a restaurant patron. Uh, he was killed on the, uh, standing outside as well. There's a 21 year old woman that was killed inside the restaurant. I believe her name was Akila the Silva. She was 23 years old and uh, she's critically hit, wounded inside the restaurant. Uh, later she died at Vanderbilt University's Medical Center. In addition to those victims, we also have a 21-year-old Shanita Wagner, 24-year-old Sherita Henderson. Uh, they were both injured and being treated at Vanderbilt University Medical Center as well. So I wanna lift them up. Um, I do want us to pray. I do want us to keep them in our thoughts, but I want us to do something else that I always notice happens when policemen shoot down our black men and women, and that is, people do go fund me for them, or they give them money. And my thing is, is that we need to put our money where our mouth is, and we need to make sure um, that we are given of our resources to help out these families that are in need, to help out James and his need, because more of the fact was, I was really shaken up by this today. I was really shaken, I was really upset, I was really angry. Um, and I haven't talked to James, I don't really want to talk to James, because I think right now he should be able to grieve with what happened, but what I do understand is that, This is something that's very serious to us and I'm really getting tired of when it comes to the black community um, in these situations, we're overlooked um, and we're not given the same treatment. And this right here, I cannot allow to be an act of mental illness. I just refuse that any time a white man shoots up something uh, domestically here in the United States, they're always seen as a mental illness issue while everybody else is seen as a terrorist. Uh, this is a terrorist. Now, I don't necessarily believe in the death penalty. I would love to, but I can't. Uh, something in my heart tells me that I have to forgive. Now, I'm not in the forgiving process right now. I'm just going to be very honest about that. I'm not. I'm actually very angry. And I'm very pissed off. Uh, but what I do understand is, is that I cannot allow people to call this mental illness. Uh, when somebody goes into minority communities, specifically in this one, black communities and shoots up a store and people lose their lives. We want to give credit to mental illness because they're a white man. I cannot allow that today Um, so I want to go ahead and just give like a 30 second moment of silence Uh to all the victims and i'm very grateful and thankful for james Shaw. but I wish james never had to be in that situation at all Um, i'm glad he's able to go back to his daughter to his family uh, Who I know them very well, and I'm, I'm, i'm really thinking about them right now, but I just am very bothered by this situation and I want to make sure all of our political officials hear this, and listen to, and know that Black Nashville cannot be silent and will not be silent on this situation. So here we go for thirty-second moment of silence. Let's go ahead and start the show um nikki how are you feeling baby? on what just recently happened
2: beyond that pretty good man pretty good pretty good um it's a pretty good day in nashville um you know other than the tragedy that happened this morning i'm pretty good Uh just got out of church uh long weekend you know at the grove we do those three folks five marathon services so yeah.
1: I'm, I'm a little tired but uh, Uh, ready to run on for the Lord, right? We definitely want to give a shout out to uh, Reverend Dr. Brianna Parker. Absolutely. Uh, I'm sure she tore down the church today. Uh,
2: Listen, I really think Brianna would be considered the best preacher in the United States if she had male anatomy. Oh, wow. Like, I mean, like... She is a beast. Yeah, like... She's definitely a beast. Listen. (laughs) Listen, I'm fat, and I almost felt like running (laughs) I don't run after my children. I felt like running
1: (laughs) We definitely want to give a shout out to uh, Reverend Dr. Brianna Parker, uh, especially with uh, Black Millennial Faith Cafe uh, that's out there. Y'all make sure to look her up. And she's got a book coming out, and well, we'll have her on
2: uh, pretty soon, but she's got a book that drops, uh, I believe, in May. So uh, definitely, definitely cop um, that, do some pre-orders. Uh, but we, uh, we've I, I don't know, how
1: you feeling, Eric? Man, I mean, beyond that, man, I'm trying to have, I really had a great weekend beyond, beyond that. It just really, it shook me up because of how close. To the connection that i was but i mean i'm i'm going to let that go for right now i just want to make sure that we do the action piece but definitely want to make sure that we give a shout out to brianna parker we're going to have her on the show soon y'all make sure to google her look up her stuff and make sure to go get her. if book. you don't
2: know bri parker you you i don't know what you're doing out yeah, here in this right. life absolutely, yeah, like, absolutely just find yourself right now and ask the lord to take the will listen i'm glad too uh the car is not here um uh, <laughs> <laughs> no ashiness. <laughs> too late <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no ocean <lotion> for <laughs> nothing you <know>. <laughs>
2: so our brother is not here today uh we're we gonna do our best to hold it down we're gonna hold it down
1: for my boy uh, shout out to the car man even though we joke about the car all the time car is out here doing it the car is doing great <laughs> stuff out here that's why he's not here with us right now because he's doing great stuff and so um, since he's not here, we'll go ahead and talk nice about him and say that he's doing a great job. Now, when that motherfucker comes back, of course. Speak for yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, ain't, I ain't saying shit to that nigga. He yeah. still ain't put up the goddamn website, so fuck That's
2: me. why he ain't here, really, yeah. y'all. We didn't want to tell y'all, <laughs> but we suspended this nigga, okay? He got to sit out, like, two shows because he ain't put up his
1: website. We did like yet. the Black Baptist Pastors did. We sat him down and wanted to look at the service for a little while and just see where he could be fitting in in this situation, so... We'll make sure to get back to it. Look, um, we do have a great show today. Uh, we really want to talk about uh, not only young black millennial faith, but we also want to talk about um, what that looks like, particularly in the life of Reverend Dr. Zach Niels. And I'm very definitely glad to have him on the show today. Yes. What's up with you, Zach?
3: Man, I'm good. Thanks so much for having me.
1: Absolutely, man. Um, I'm glad that uh, Nikki's uh, brother, uh, uh, Pastor uh, Napoleon Harris, hit us up and made sure to said, look, man. Uh, you definitely need to make sure that you have Zach on the show to talk about not only his book, but just to talk about where he came from and even talk about why this book is so important for us. And uh, 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 interesting fact is that me and Zach actually went to high school together. He was a senior uh, when I was a freshman at Riverdale High School. Go Warriors. Uh, Go Warriors. Uh, and then I uh, <laughs> connected back with him again at uh, Vanderbilt Divinity School where he got his uh, MDiv there. Uh, but then got your PhD at Chicago's uh, Northwestern, Northwestern University. Northwestern, Northwestern, oh shit, killing right. game. Uh, Northwestern University, and so we definitely are going to just go ahead and hop into Listen, it.
2: Listen, and Zach is a hell of a preacher. Yeah, yeah, Like let's let's not skip over that. Yeah, like yeah. Let's, now let's Zach, not.
1: Zach's doing his thing, man. So what I want to do is, is that we'll go ahead and just start with the questions and just uh, really allow, allow Zach to introduce who he is, man. So I guess the best way that I want to start is, is just Zach, who are you?
3: Wow, <laughs> a deep philosophical question. Too,
1: I mean, our pe- we you know to, but our
3: people need to know who you are. Yeah, you what know, I, people, people have asked me that in the last couple months, and I think the best way for me to describe myself is I'm a storyteller. Um, my father was a speech pathologist, um, and he worked in the VA hospital for almost 40 years, working with Iraq War vets, Vietnam vets, who had traumatic brain injury and had trouble speaking communicating. And so I grew up with that, watching my dad help people become more confident communicating. And he did this through a variety of techniques. Uh, He always told us stories growing up and that was something that stuck with me when I got into ministry. um, Stories was was just a way that I was able to express myself naturally, just growing up the way that I did. And it just so happened I went into ministry, went into preaching and got my PhD in rhetoric and was just fascinated with how you can literally open up um, worlds and expand imaginations with with stories and, and words rightly, rightly told and expressed. So, you know, that's what I try to do. I think I'm a storyteller, I try to be a storyteller and I tell stories that, um, you know, I, I try to tell stories that help us to uh, en, envision better um, ways of being in the world, you know?
1: So, uh, why don't you do this? Tell us a story about um, the context of where you're from. Just so you can get a more <clears throat> mix of who uh,
3: Zach is. Sure, so I was, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and um, grew up there till I was about nine, and then grew up in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So I, my, my childhood is Murfreesboro, Middle Tennessee. So I am, um, you know, Middle Tennessee, <laughs> raised, and uh, just kind of hung out here for, for most of my life. Went to college at Western Kentucky University. Sure. And uh, so, yeah, this is, this is my area, this is my, you know this is where I, you know middle tennessee so so that's kind of where i came up um yeah
1: good stuff so what makes you tick oh,
3: what makes me tick wow um seeing people tap into their unfulfilled excellency that's what makes me tick so i tell stories that help people to do that There, that you know and going i really appreciate that you named Um, the tragedy earlier of the shooting in Antioch because what what I mean it's just it's so tragic in so many ways and I think about these grieving families and I think about the you know you start and I really appreciate you naming the victims and and saying a little bit about them they're so some of them were so young and now we will never know the beauty of their gifts the beauty of their journeys And the world is deprived of that. And so what makes me tick is um, finding ways to help people tap into the the stuff that is not yet fulfilled, the the gifts, the talents, the excellency, that will bless the world, that will heal the world, that will inspire the world. Um, So that's what makes me tick, and and that's why today really it just—it really hit me hard because we'll never know now. We, we, we—you know—those who knew and loved those people had 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 a sense of of who they were and 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 what what they were offering the world. Um, but it's just—it's so sad because, you know, we'll 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 never get to see their journeys play out.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what's your story, Zach? I guess um, I asked you why why what makes you tick. I also asked you. Uh, context but what is your story somebody I know I said who is Zach Mills but I really want to know your story from your point
3: of view absolutely so my story is weird it's it's weird it's unorthodox um I'm actually adopted Uh, I was adopted um when I was I went into foster care at four months old Mm. um and I was adopted it was you know it's a weird thing too because um when I was in the process of um you know my parents now who adopted me when they were considering adopting me. Uh, you know, I was, you know, just a couple months old. And um, we get further along in the adoption process and social workers, people that are supposed to be advocates for children told my parents, don't adopt this child wow. because he's going to end up just as messed up as his parents. Wow. So, so that was, that's how my story started, where, where I was already labeled the throwaway child wow. before, you know, I could even advocate for myself. And what were
1: your parents? I mean, what were they like for them to even say something like that?
3: Uh, so, so my my parents are just the most amazing people. Like, I, you know, so they they um, like I said, my dad did his PhD in speech pathology. My mom actually did an, um, her undergrad de- degree in audiology and speech mm-hmm. pathology too. So, wow. they they communication and that was always in my family. But, um they're just the most wonderful people. And it speaks to how, you know, there are sometimes some narratives, some scripts, some things that people say can be so powerful and authoritative that Mm -hmm. they lead you in the wrong direction. And I thank God that that day when that social worker told my parents don't adopt him, and that was the script for me and my siblings. We were just labeled a certain kind of way um, that we weren't gonna be anything. Um, that was the script that was the narrative that was given to us and my parents chose to you know some of my mentors say you have to learn to hear with your third ear Mm. you know see with your third eye you know hear hear that frequency from the universe that is just and loving and um that's what my parents did so that's the kind of um those are the kinds of people that my parents are They're, they're they're people that can you know sift through the bullshit that can hear and see uh, love, kindness, that kind of thing. so that so so that's a huge part of my story mm-hmm. that um, adopted and I come from a very multiracial family. So uh, both of my parents are white. Okay. Um, my younger uh, sister is my biological sister. Uh, my younger brother is my biological brother. My older brother is South Korean. My older sister is my bi- my my parents' biological, um, so she's white. So we look like the United Nations. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Great. Absolutely. So. Guess,
1: how did that impact you in a lot of ways?
3: So many ways. I mean, so growing up, you're, you know, people want to put you in a certain category, or if they don't understand you, they, you know, you get kind of pushed to the side or neglected, that kind of thing. So, from my earliest memories, it was always kind of feeling like I was. I didn't quite fit in Mm -hmm. you know i I didn't fit anywhere you know and um so that was hard you know and and all of us have those kind of stories i think growing up just trying to find our ourselves um so for me my story was i just didn't feel like i fit anywhere for so long so what i did is i always sat back and watched because i didn't want to draw attention to myself Mm -hmm. um and so i just sat back and watched every one of my teachers were um Always so observant to say, Zach, you're so quiet. Every one of my teachers is so quiet, but I was observing. I was just kind of learning how people interacted, and now it serves me so well. Um, so that's that's kind of. I was just fascinated with how people interacted and communicated, and you know, made friends or 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 handled conflict, that kind of thing. So I am so attentive now because of that experience. To um, especially people who don't feel like they they fit. Mm-hmm. I, I can mm-hmm. I have an antenna and I just know and gravitate towards those people and can connect with them and say, Hey, you're not alone. I get this. I you know. Welcome to the Welcome. podcast. That's why there, I'm here. There you <laughs> go. That's it. That's it.
1: A lot of motherfuckers that don't fit in. Yeah. So, that's
3: right. That's yeah. right.
1: Uh, yeah, man. So um, I guess uh, even with that, we know that you're a great listener. Uh, we definitely know that you uh, try to keep yourself in the background, but I guess more of what I'm trying to push at or at least get at with uh, hearing you talk about this was what was that itch or what was that burning inside of you that literally said that, you know what, though I have to feel like I am, um, I am maybe on the outside and don't fit in, what causes me to have to use my gift and not hide that gift?
3: That's a really good question. I I think, um, the the best way I mean I don't want this to sound corny or like holy but I think the best way I can describe it is it it was something from beyond me like a like a calling mm-hmm. from God like I can I can remember my earliest memories in elementary school when they asked us during career day what do you want to be I remember I said like doctor lawyer you know the the classic stuff that kids say in those spaces but I remember when I said that it, it didn't quite fit with how I was feeling mm-hmm. and so. Even way back then, I felt this, this. It was a passion, it was a fire where it, it didn't make sense to me because I didn't want to be in front of the room because I was so, I, you know, I, I was bullied a lot and, you know, I didn't want to be out in front of people, but that was still something that was a passion to be out in front of people. And it was a passion not to be seen, but a passion to, to help people understand what it means to tap into those things that you're passionate about. So that you can you can live more fully and, and you know be more um, be more authentic so so I, I'd say it was it was a calling that's the best way I can describe it it was just and it was in me and I will never forget in 2004 when I preached my first sermon I was it was in this small CMA church in rural Kentucky. I was up there preaching you know, you know rural, very small church, wonderful people I was up there preaching and I, I said, "Oh my God, I am finally doing." This I'm doing something that, that is fulfilling this feeling I've had yeah. since I was a kid. Wow. And so that was kind of the journey that brought me to Vanderbilt. So
1: I guess i got to ask this question, too, because I think a lot of our listeners, though um, you and Dakari are both ministers, and I used to be a minister, the question that I have to ask seriously is this. Um, how did you know? Because a lot of people ask that question. of How did you know that this is what you were supposed to do, especially within a faith context? People want to know, how did you know?
3: You know, I don't, I don't know that I knew mm-hmm. then. I, I think that I had a very good sense that I was working as a journalist at the time, mm-hmm. and I remember somebody in the marketing department of the small newspaper in Gallatin, Tennessee, came up to me and said, you don't belong here. I was like, what the hell do you mean I don't belong here?
0: Like like yeah, like like
1: what is that?
3: And she said, "No, no, what I mean is you're a good writer, but there, the, you don't you don't belong here. There's, this is not this is not big enough for you. This Ooh. is this is, you know, there's something else." Yeah. And enough of those kinds of experiences happened to me um, where I started to say, "Man, it was, you have this feeling and it's nothing like anything you've saw before. It's it's something weird, and then and then this weird thing happens where other people are saying stuff to you yeah. that is confirming this feeling that you have, mm-hmm. and then so like it, it I I didn't know for certain, but I knew that there was something happening that I didn't know what it was, and it just felt like Vanderbilt was the next place to go. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it I I felt led there, and I did feel that when I was there in the classrooms and then preaching in churches, I felt like that was. Um, the way that I was feeling, that I, I was fulfilling um, a sense of calling that I was feeling. And, you know, y- you go back and forth. You, you Sometimes you're, you're really certain about it. Yeah. And other times, yeah. like you have a, yeah. a bad preaching experience, you yeah. fall on your face, you yeah. just yeah. like, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And you just feel like, oh, no, I made a mistake. I'm not supposed to be doing this. Yeah. And so I think that that's part of this thing called like grace and faith is yeah. that you kind of it ebbs and flows. Sometimes you, you feel like you know, sometimes you don't. But I do know that this journey that I'm on, nothing in the world, nothing that I've ever done, um, fulfilled the passion mm-hmm. that I had, except for this journey that I've been on, Vanderbilt Divinity School, and, and wow. since. So, mm-hmm. so while maybe you know, Paul says um, we see but dimly now. Yeah. Then we'll we'll see each other face to face, but now we see but darkly, you know, through a dark mirror. So maybe part of the point is that we can't fully know for certain, but it, it is the faith to, to believe and trust. And, and it's also like tapping into, it's believing in yourself too. It, it, it's having confidence in your own gifts and your own talents. And so, so it is an act of faith, I think. Wow. That's, that, that's what it is. It's, I
1: mean, you have a lot of different experiences and just hearing them and seeing how in some ways, it has prepared you for this time and for this season. I guess um, what I'm hearing is one, coming from this background where people would probably say, you're not supposed to be shit. And you said that literally, don't adopt this kid. He's not supposed to be shit. Which makes me also, when you said you have biological brothers and sisters, yep. that they were also not supposed to be shit. Right. But then that you are adopted by this speech pathologist, right. a, a mother that also is audio visual. Yep. Uh, and then, I don't know if y'all hear this, but the distinction in Zach's voice of when he talks and and uh, knows how to really say it. And then his listening skills to actually make sure to pay attention to who uh, or what people are saying. And then to take that from a journalistic standpoint uh, says a lot about that preparation. So I guess uh, from thinking about all that, when you got to Vanderbilt, how did you use those gifts to even get to the point of going to your next step?
3: Wow. So, you know, I think Vanderbilt for me was starting to to really reflect more seriously about all those things you just said, okay. um, because I got to Vanderbilt and it was just a feeling I felt a calling i didn't know it was a lot of uncertainty, um, but Vanderbilt was really a time where I started to really think about my experience, my story, and that was the place where I really came to to see myself as i'm a communicator i'm a storyteller yeah. you know I, you know i'm a listener and and You know, looking back at my experience growing up and being bullied, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we all go through things that are hard and traumatic. And sometimes we look at those things as like scars that like, man, like this is I don't want to bear this to the world. But you, you get to a point then. And that point for me was Vanderbilt where I started to see these things as wow, like because I felt so isolated and because I felt so alone, it 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 helped me to be able to listen to people better. And I got to Vanderbilt, and I, as you know, because you were there, like, all, all, we get all kind of stuff at Vanderbilt, like all kind of people, all kind of experiences, right? Mm-hmm. Some that are familiar, some that are kind of hostile to you. And so my experience really prepared me because I, I was able to to really um, to listen more clearly and uh, to see myself as a storyteller. And from Vanderbilt, um, went to Chicago, and you know, I, I think that just that time at Vanderbilt really helped me to. Um, to kind of s- sit and, and, and reflect critically about my story. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think what happened for me in Chicago was um, my, me kind of embodying my story. Um, so, yeah, like it, it was just, that was just a time for me to just kind of sit down, shut up, and um, like think about the, you know, I always say that there's, there's nothing, there's no such thing as wasted time. Mm-hmm. Because I, I go back over my story when I got to Vanderbilt, and I'm like, man, like I wasted so many years, like just kind of being in the background. And there's no such thing as wasted time. Because my superpower now is um, my superpower is is radical listening. And I know in the span of you know uh, 60 seconds, the kind of person I'm dealing with, and usually the kind of person I'm dealing with is someone who has so much greatness in them, but is is kind of afraid of it. Mm and what they do and it's what i did is you play small so that other people don't feel insecure or uncomfortable because i know what it's like to feel insecure and uncomfortable Mm -hmm. and it was like this hypersensitivity i had so i would always just kind of play play down play my gifts you know mm-hmm. put a put a you know and, you know I, I I would I would diminish them I would dilute them
4: mm-hmm.
3: you know um, for, for so that other people would feel comfortable and so that was kind of all the reflection I did at Vanderbilt I get to Chicago and Chicago was all about um, no we are not going to hide our light yeah. you know mm-hmm. we are going to celebrate this because it wasn't just what it did for me to to you know finally affirm myself and my gifts it wasn't just that. It was, it was what I was seeing, how it would help other people who were like me and the light would go off for them saying, oh, my God, yes, I experienced something similar. So, you know, when you it was just this kind of ripple effect that happened in Chicago where, where so when you stop playing small, when you stop diminishing your gifts, mm-hmm. when you stop. Um, you know, accepting the kind of narratives that other people have given you to believe about yourself. Oh, you're weird, you're a nerd, you're whatever. Um, When you kind of stop accepting those scripts and throw them out, um, you begin to see how your liberation starts to liberate other people. So that's what Chicago was for me that the, the years past Vandy was kind of living in that liberation of accepting you know, and I, I say like for me, I'm, I, I consider myself a weird person, um, but weird as culture, cult- counter-cultural, weird as unconventional, weird as um, innovative. Mm-hmm. And so weird doesn't have to be this negative thing. And and so we we find and see people that don't fit our experience or that ha- that look or sound different, and we call them weird or we call them odd. But it's, for me and my experience, I've, I've learned to, to, to accept those things as, um, Superpowers, or 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 just um, wonderfully unique things that only that person has to contribute to the world. So um, it's just an unfortunate thing that when we 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 experience people that don't um, make sense to our language or our experiences, that we we just put them in these categories so that they make sense to us right. and so that we feel better about ourselves. Um, so, but yeah, the Chicago years were all about you know living in. The liberated self of our gifts and you know, that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I love when you were talking about um, dimming your light, and I think a lot of times to be a millennial in a faith-based organization, a lot of times you have to dim your life just to get along. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know that saying, "Get along to get along." Right. And essentially, I always wondered about that, like how much is too much to dim your light, um, because those organizations are missing out on the light. Um, that we bring, but it's almost like, you know, those forces that are in power and have been in power are are too intimidated by the light, so you have to kind of, so I can operate in the space in some manner, kind of dim down, I don't.
3: No, absolutely, so I think, one of the things that i learned going to chicago so my experience at vanderbilt gave me a whole lot of tools so i felt a lot more confident and so i get to chicago i'm like i'm going to save the world i am going to you know all these unjust systems i'm going to fix them and so you learn very quickly how powerful these systems are when you stand toe-to-toes with giants um, you know so chicago is you know a whole history of giants a whole history of unjust systems and I learned very quickly, you know, it's one so I was shining my light very confidently. And then you see these institutions that say, Nope, no, oh no, we we can't function if we have a whole lot of people shining their lights mm-hmm. confidently and being confident and knowing who they are. We can't we can't function if these if, if people who are gifted um, stop believing the scripts that we yeah. give them to follow so that yeah. we can control them. So the thing that I learned very quickly is if you're going to shine your light, so shine. there's a, there's a strategy to shining shine your light. Okay. you gotta, you got to understand the institution that you're dealing with. Yep. And then you also have to have what I like to call, what my mentors called, a go to hell fund. Okay, <laughs> So what that means is you have to be, when you get your job, you have to, you have to be so wise with your money. Mm -hmm. You have to be, I was making $23,000 a year, you know, as a journalist, well, before I moved, yeah, here in Tennessee when I was, yeah, in Gallatin, $23,000 a year out of college as a print journalist, Mm -hmm. making pennies, right? Mm I was. I saved my money. I saved as much as I could. I always, in every job, saved as much as I could. When I got mm-hmm. to Chicago, I had a little bit of a, you know, a little nest egg. Yeah. Okay, and so that's when I started to shine my light, to be more confident. Mm-hmm. And the the institutions didn't like it, and so they start retaliating, and they do all kinds of things. I
1: can't let you stop right, there. right. Go deep into how they retaliate.
3: So so it gets so deep. You have people. At institutions, at churches, mm. at, at churches. Okay. Mm. Churches who, who follow she the the, the, here, the, the loving the loving savior mm. called Jesus Christ. People oh. who, who follow that man oh. in churches. W-W-J-D. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. I had people and, and, and leaders in churches who began to um, go and find my the friends that I had in Chicago wow. to try to insert um, lies. False narratives in their head to try to turn them against me, to try to isolate me. Mm-hmm. So that's another trick of institutions. When they can try to isolate you yeah. from your communities of care with people who love you, that's a strategy. I you, names,
1: I him for being you know, hey, right. you know,
3: well, I I say these things in my private moments
1: <laughs> all the time.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> Yes. So, but that's that was one tactic was to alienate to try to alienate me from my friends and and thank God I had the kind of friends that when that happened mm-hmm. they came immediately to me and mm-hmm. said Zach you know this is what's happening and here is kind of the narrative they're trying to paint of you so that they can fire you and and feel and and look justified doing right. it right. okay right. so that's one tactic um, and you know and it it gets so it's so hostile. Um, so just lies, deceit, deception, um, uh, sabotage, those are all the kind of tactics that, that happen. And if you, if you don't have a go to hell fund, if you don't have enough money to, li- to just say to that space, you guys can go to hell, I don't have to be here, I don't have to deal with this, go to hell. If you don't have the kind of resources to do that, you stay in that kind of situation and all kinds of violent things can happen. Um, All kinds of self-destructive things can happen to you. You can um, develop all kinds of self-destructive habits. Um, You you can start to embody the kind of negative, so they, they try to paint you a negative way, they try to paint me a negative way, that was a strategy if you stay there long enough, you start to become a self-fulfilling prophecy and you start to live into this negative wow. thing that they said that you were, but yeah. you're not. But if you stay there too long, you start to become that thing. And then everybody says, oh yeah, he was that thing. It's time to get rid of him. And so it completely undermines your journey, your story and all that kind of thing. So I always say, have a go to hell fund. Like that is that is the the wonderful strategy that you can have so that, that no institution has that kind of power over you wow. so
4: listen,
1: you can yeah so you know so i didn't go to church today but i kind of wish i did shit
4: listen
1: I got to say the exactly. exactly. point you go to hell <laughs> I you and your, to your mama go to hell, hell. shit
2: i want you and your mama your whole <laughs> family go to hell fun that's what i want God, damn.
1: so i got so let me let me go ahead and get to this point i guess um, you've alluded to your faith. Uh, So Mm -hmm. I guess what is the biology, what's the biography of your faith?
3: So I was raised in the Presbyterian Church in Ann Arbor, Michigan, went there for nine years, faithfully, you know, every Sunday. We moved from Murfreesboro, uh, from uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan to Murfreesboro, Tennessee when I was nine. And after we moved, when I was nine, man, we were, you know, Christian, Mother's Day, you know, Easter, CMEs, CMEs. right? <laughs> you know, and my parents were more faithful, but the kids, we just didn't want to go. It was a new place, and we just, so we didn't go. And um, uh, it wasn't until I was like uh, 18, 18 in college, I was starting to attend a Baptist, Baptist church in college. And um, my parents went to a Disciples of Christ church in Murfreesboro, so I have Presbyterian, Disciples of Christ, Baptist. Um, I served in a United Methodist church um, when I was an intern at Vandy. Um, I, you know, so I, I don't have any kind of denominational um, kind of root. My my roots are all of them. That was my experience. It was just really diverse. So. Um, any tradition that I am invited to preach in, I, I, I kind of feel at home because, yeah, it just, I, I just have, um, my story is just all of those have in, influenced my, my upbringing.
1: So what do you believe?
3: <laughs> that is a really good question. I think that um, I believe God is love. Mm. Um, and I think that what we miss, um, whether we go to church every Sunday or we don't, Um, whether we believe in a higher power or not. I think the piece that we miss is um, that if you just look at the the headlines today, if you just look at the conversations that are happening on social media, everybody is arguing. Everybody is um, waiting for their turn to talk. No one's really honestly listening. Everybody Thinks that when someone has a different viewpoint than you, mm-hmm. that they must be the worst person in the world. Right. And you know, and some, and there are really bad people in the world, right? <laughs> but, but I, th- I think that when we encounter someone who has a different viewpoint on social media or whatever, the, the kind of impulse is to just say, oh, they're just horrible people. They're just you know. And I think the thing that, you know, my I believe that God is love, and I believe that what the the thing that we can do to, um, to kind of embody that love. Is is to begin to to just see each other as human and start to listening to start to listen more than we talk. Um, you know, my, my theology has changed a lot since Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. and um, I think the the again the the best way I can say it is God is love. The the more we can embody that love and humility, I believe that um, we we those of us who believe in a higher power, mm-hmm. regardless of what that tradition is, I think if we can live lives that are more humble and and uh, more open minded we get um, to a place where we're more faithfully walking towards that god whatever that god's name is i think arrogance and and um, meanness and and rigidity and closed mindedness are things that are like those of us who, who have you know have a, a sense of a higher power those are things that are just diametrically opposed Absolutely. you know you know and um, So I don't know, so that's, God is love. That's where I, that's what I believe. And, um, you know, I, I, if you would ask me that question 10 years ago, I would have had a lot more to say. Mm. But, you know, I've just seen this thing play out, people of faith who say they believe in God and believe in Jesus. People at nonprofits, people in businesses, say they believe in God and not and Jesus, and and just it's the the their lives and their way of engaging with others is the exact opposite. And so, the way I I just have to start by God is love, and yeah. then from there, how do I every day model my behavior, my speech, my the way that I listen that that is is close to I can understand of what that love is. Yeah. Yeah. So now, now, how you I'm 38.
1: So. Zach's 38 years old. What what do you think about, uh, because you're about three to four years older than me, what do Mm -hmm. you think about our generation, specifically uh, the black community, Mm -hmm. um, but I still want to kind of go further with those who are 40 and under.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: What do you think is the status of our faith right now? And I'm not necessarily saying just church or religion, I'm saying literally, what is the status of our faith?
3: Well... (laughs) That's a really good question. Um, I think there are a lot of people. If we're if we're going to just talk about the Black Church right now, I think there are a lot of people in crisis, mm. um, and I think the crisis is this: that they have grown up hearing, so so narratives and stories these and scripts. These are the words that I'm going to continue to use because they're powerful. Uh, if you think about the script of a movie, actors and actresses, you know. Th- th- the stuff they do on screen is directed and influenced by a script. Yeah. Okay, Absolutely. And so narrative story scripts that we have as, as people, those influence how we interact with people. And so I think a lot of people are having crises, crises now in the black church because the scripts that they've been given no longer match the kind of lives that they feel are most fulfilling and life-giving for them. And so there is this kind of crisis that's happening. And, And so they, and it's not to diminish their wonderful experiences in the church that they have and wonderful memories. And so they're cherishing those, but then they're also saying, man, like the way that the minister interpreted this scripture or the way that, we talked about this issue, sex, Mm -hmm. sexuality, or gender in Bible study doesn't jive with how I'm feeling and how I'm living in the world. So I think there's a lot of people who are experiencing crisis, but do not feel safe enough um, and don't have the kinds of communities to express Mm, and be real about the fact that I'm having a crisis. And here's this thing that these things are not matching up for me anymore. And some people are doing self-destructive things because they think it's them. They think they're the ones that have the problem. It's not them. Yeah. It is the tradition that, that in some ways has, has failed them. Yeah. Um, and it, it is communities of care that have, in some ways have failed them. It is ministers who in some ways have failed them. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so I think that's the state for many people in the black church is uh, the silent crisis, the silent suffering. Yeah. And, the, and so that's why I love this podcast because it becomes an avenue for people to express it. And then for that expression to connect with other people who are feeling it, mm-hmm. but for whatever reason feel silenced or don't feel um, that there's a space for them to really express it with other people feel safe. Um, there was another part of that question, I just can't remember what it was. So. Oh, it was straight up what okay. think
1: the status of our faith as yeah. younger generation is? Yeah,
3: yeah, so I think that... <laughs> This might get me in trouble, but I think that there's a lot of dishonesty in our faith. That's
1: going to get you in it, trouble. it's going to get them <laughs> in trouble for not doing it? On, <laughs> right. no, no. yeah,
0: on Yeah, that. I think
3: I think there's some dishonesty. I think that um, again, there, there's the script that we have to look a certain way, sound a certain way, yes. believe these kind of things, yes. and yes. and 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 for many of us, especially millennials, they're saying no. This is the, this kind of way. It, you know, the way that faith has been articulated. In many spaces and many traditional denominations, no longer, no longer is relevant, no longer um, is meaningful, life-giving for for how I'm experiencing life. And so I think that that's that's the thing that's happening is that people are experiencing that, but they're fake. They're 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 not being real about it. Yes. And um, and it's understandable because again, like I said earlier, that there are some spaces where people especially millennials don't feel like they have a safe space to to voice, to voice that and mm-hmm. so so I think that, that I think there's a lot of dishonesty and it's not it's not necessarily malicious dishonesty like I'm trying to be dishonest because I'm trying to deceive you it's dishonesty because there's honestly a confusion about like how do I be real mm-hmm. how do I be how do I be myself how do be how do I be boldly authentic yeah. you know how do I tap into my unfulfilled excellency you know how do I do that how do I you know so yeah I think that That's kind of I think crisis, and then um, dishonesty. You know, Um, but I I think there are a lot of people who really. But I get. But again, God is love. So I think that if we can find ways to communicate that and embody that in churches and other spaces that I, I think that um, we can get to a place where we're helping people to be more authentic and be yeah. be more honest about where God can, God can handle tough questions. That's the thing that I don't yeah, understand yeah. about yeah, yeah, yeah. churches, yeah. right? Like, like yeah. God can handle God. your yeah. damn tough questions, okay? If God is the creator, if, if God, is, so a lot of these conversations we have in our church, God is omnipotent, omnipresent, okay, well, if God is all of those things, then certainly God who created you and us knows that we are not God, yeah. Knows that we do not have all the answers. He, he, he God, God knows that we are going to question things. Yeah. Certainly, that God understands mm-hmm. that we're going to wrestle, and we're not going to understand. And certainly, God, that God does not condemn us to hell, or condemn us to purgatory, or condemn us to a life of illness or sickness mm-hmm. because we have these tough questions. Right. Okay, I think that um, you know. I, yeah, I just, I just think that God, I think that's the space where, if God is love, that that's the space where the most life-giving and wonderful loving things can happen, where people can say, God, I don't understand this damn thing. Yeah. Like, he, here, here we go. Just, God can handle your rage. God can handle your anger. God can handle your tough questions.
1: Absolutely. I'm gonna throw that out to you too, what uh, What's up? You know, what you, um, Zach Arden took us to church. He day. did. But, oh. I, but I, need, I need to throw that out there too just to have this group conversation. What, what is your thoughts on the uh, status of, now I don't want to say millennial faith. I just want to say faith in general. And then I also want to say with us being 40 and under. Um, you 40 and under? Oh well, yeah, I am, okay. I am. I don't let the white hairs fool you. <laughs> <in your head>. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, seriously, um, what is the state? What is the state of black faith, black millennial faith? What is the I state of I
2: think Zach kind of, I mean, honestly, that, that's,
1: and I'm asking yeah. you more because, you know, truthfully, and I guess maybe it's because I just want to be nice today is that, you know, Nikki always throwing out some goddamn wisdom when it comes to this piece. And I really want to hear her piece on the status of black millennial faith.
2: Honestly um, I think Zach is like head on, like, yo, um, I do think um there's been a lot of uh, dishonesty. Okay. Um, I think uh I think on both sides, from the Q and a pulpit, right? Um um I think the, the pulpit has lied. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of it has been maliciously. Mm-hmm. I think uh, niggas want you to fill them seats. Mm-hmm. And so uh, they'll tell you anything. they like an infomercial sometimes. Yep. Um, you know, if you just pray hard enough, you just keep coming. The mm-hmm. Lord gonna turn it around.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Nah, nigga. Um, <laughs> like, like, let's be for real. Like, You know what I mean? Like, and I think we need to just stop, at, as, as clergy, I'm gonna say we need to stop damn lying. Mm, like yes, like I don't know what God gonna do. All I can do, I learned the greatest lesson from my twins the other day. I put my son in this this box. I put Connor in this box, and he couldn't get out. And so Caleb was like trying to pull him out of this joint, right? And I think I'm saying this because I think this is the answer. What we do? Because I think a lot of us we sit around and we're like, yo, what do we do? We see this person that's been hurt by these lies. We see this person. How do we? How do we reconnect them mm. to this community of mm. faith, right? So I, uh, my son, he's in the box because he was playing with it. So I just put him in there. I want to see what he's going to do. Okay. His brother, who's, who's smaller than him, um, went went and tried to pull him out. He's pulling on him like, mm. and they uh, uh, they grunting everything, trying to get him out. And so uh, when Caleb realized he couldn't pull Connor out, he just sat down next to him in this box. And he sat there until I pulled Connor out. And I feel like that's what we have mm. to do. It's just sit there with them, right? <laughs> Cause only Jesus can make
4: this shit right. That's
2: it. Like, oh. I think that's the answer. Like, oh. I don't I don't have an answer. Like, I wish I could right. abracadabra at that what Andre three thousand said. Oh. I wish I could abracadabra and, and and erase all this and make it, you know what I'm saying? But well, we can't. So the only yeah. thing I can do is sit here. Mm. With you mm. Right I, I wish I could pull you out But I can sit here Right here with you Until the Lord decides mm. That that this shit is enough yeah. And we gonna fix this yeah. I, That's what I see Like I, I feel wow. like We've lied to people too long And that's we've it. lost the pew to lie wow. uh, yes. Because they've been trying To fit into wow. um, This image that we've lied To yes. them and given them And so mm. they, they're lying And wearing masks Trying to say that They feel alright But at mm. the end of the day They don't feel mm. alright And we've never given them A place to wrestle With the hard things. the hard things of what happens when you do have sex we we so busy telling them don't have sex right you like sex shit I like sex right what happens when you do have sex and and you feel used Mm. where where can I go and talk about that at yes you know what I mean like we haven't given people a place to talk a safe Mm. place to talk about these things and then you know we just we lie and so yeah yeah yep Yeah. yeah
1: That's all I got. These wow. niggas trying to make me go back to church and shit. I'm not going But that I mean, they, they, they really doing their thing. He'll be there next week, y'all. Don't worry about it. Shit. Um, So I guess from that. We going to sit on the floor with you until the Lord is out are going to sit with me? <laughs> we going to
2: sit
4: with you. are going to pull me out of this box.
1: <laughs> so let me, I guess, uh, transition into this piece, uh, especially with Zach. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zach has Zach threw a lot of stuff out of us that's been very heavy, but... Um, What's the story behind uh, You writing this book The Last Blues Preacher I want to get to the book but I don't want to go to the book just yet I just sure. Can I just say it's a nice looking book man, you know, man, Some people write look.
2: books and it's paper <laughs> make they It sure. look like it's like the newspaper right. Paper, it's recycled and look, shit look. And it's not because they earth conscious <laughs> It's because, you know, this is a nice Hardback <laughs> book yes, And it looks good yes. I mean, it's got, I, listen Say it Listen. <laughs> some of y'all need to stop with this shit Come on now Trying to get my twenty dollars and on your now. shit look like a I'm coloring book, boo
1: boo <laughs> oh, with ten pages. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm looking at this new large press. Right it's, it's a heavy book. <laughs> it's in my hands. I kind of feel like iPod did that commercial where they felt like they were guys' yes. hands holding the iPod. That's how I feel holding this man's book right now, man. <laughs> this is a hell of a book. It looks good. It does. I'm, I'm so, ready to read the right. book. I'm looking at the book. <laughs> But, uh, but uh, definitely, uh, we're going to make sure to take a picture and put it on uh, our social media accounts mm-hmm. to make we'll sure we put the link up too, because dude. This is dope Amazon, box, can you, Amazon? Right. We're going to get there, we're going to get there. Okay. So i guess give Zach, just go ahead and tell us a story of what got you to the point of wanting to write a book like this.
3: It's a really interesting story. So um, I was serving in the church in Chicago okay. as an associate minister, okay. and one Sunday, you know, you don't know, have the receiving line after, you know, you do your sermon, you know, everybody's saying, hey, thank you, Reverend. You never know if they really, like, like you the sermon or not, it. right? You're like, just,
4: that was Right. you know,
3: if they if they passive-aggressive <laughs> and, like, really cussing you out, like, oh, is this genuine, right? So, okay, you're like, whatever, whatever, just, like, just going through the motions. I don't care. I just want to go home, go to sleep. And, you know, these two ladies came up to me, and they had been worshiping at the church for a couple Sundays, and they said, Hey, Reverend Mills, you know, we know you have a background in, in journalism. You're a journalist. Um, have you ever heard of Reverend Clay Evans? And I said, "Well, yeah, I've heard of Reverend Clay Evans." Um, and I said, "Would you be interested in writing his biography?"
4: Mm.
1: <laughs> it's like, "Wow.
3: What? <laughs> what? And so It's
1: always the sisters that put something heavy man, on. Listen. And Listen! So, and, and and yeah, Boy, so what would we be doing right. their job? So, Arno. yeah, say, <laughs> one for <of> the black <laughs> ones. <of them? laughs> <laughs> you know. That be me, and, Jesus. Well, well, nigga, you need a job. <laughs> <laughs> That go to
4: hell for
3: oh, yeah. <laughs> interestingly though these were two white women
4: oh okay right yeah i know yeah, right man. i
3: i i, 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 I did, no i didn't i don't did, i should have let it go because that was good a, like I did, get them I did i didn't i know shit. right they, they might Yeah. they might they might have they might they
1: might have I'm gonna leave that
3: alone. yeah you're right I'm so, gonna leave
1: no we're that not enough. gonna go that
3: way i mean <laughs> look it was so good i, I didn't want to mess it up i didn't want to <laughs> blow that up because that was so good Okay, so yeah, they came up to me and said that, and so I said, you know, okay, let's, let's. Um, I need to meet him. Mm-hmm. So I met with Reverend Evans, and he just, the most humble man, like, all the stuff that I learned about, like, he is just the most humble man, wow. and so we're, we're there during that first meeting, and the thing, okay, so a couple things. The first thing was, I was like, I don't think, Reverend Evans, I'm the person to write this book, mm. because I, I've never wanted to write a biography, I've never thought about it, I, I'm not the most experienced writer i was 32 at the time and i was like you, you have people that chicago tribune you know you know sometimes that, that could write that and so i was like i don't think i'm qualified even
1: though this nigga told you already his father's a <laughs> speech pathologist his mother does audio- an <laughs> he also told you about it, he's a journalist. But this nigga doesn't think he's qualified, and he's a great listener, we know this about him already, but he doesn't think so, he's qualified <laughs> to write this
3: book. Anyway, go so, yep, so, so the way that we continue to insert those narratives, the negative narratives that control our lives, and so that was going on. And Reverend Evans said, thank God, he said, I want you to be worried, but not concerned. Mm. Worried means that you take this thing seriously. Concern means that you're going to disappoint me. He said, You can't disappoint me, Reverend. He said, Whatever you do, I will be pleased with. Wow. Mm. Full wow. speed ahead. Mm. And so I, I t- put that story in the introduction because that, like, my life looks so much differently now because I wrote this book. This nigga and told you he was called. Yep, you know. <laughs> we
1: saw the season of his time when Reverend Clay Evans. Yeah, and it's when the affirm you. Yeah,
3: what? it is. It is.
1: Okay. Go on. <laughs> and. The thing that
3: really helped. Oh, and there's so many similarities between me and Clay, Clay Evans and our, our upbringing. Okay. Um, so, the thing that really sealed the deal. He said full speed ahead. But the thing that was really interesting, that I, you know, I, you know, I don't know. These days, I don't know if I consider myself like really holy, holy roller. I don't know. But this was one of those moments where I. I
1: called.
3: Yes, <laughs> this is one of these moments where I'm like, this was a God moment. Mm. Where okay, so. Clay Evans is from Brownsville, Tennessee. Mm. Okay. Brown, Mm. very rural, you know. Y'all
1: know know about Brownsville. 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 Right. Okay.
3: This was when Clay Evans, born 1925, is
0: still alive. He
3: sharecroppers, okay? His grandparents, slaves, you know, so so sharecroppers. Yes. And if you drive there today, you can feel it. It's a residue. You can mm. feel the ancestors there.
1: It's like whatever, it's, 1800, 1900 it's, that's it's still it. the same it's damn
3: it. place. That's it. That's it. So do not drive there um, during the night. <laughs> <Right>. you, <Yeah. laughs> you don't do that. You drive there and make sure your car is working right. right. Okay. So, right. So, so Brownsville, Tennessee. And he tells me that. And then I said to myself, oh shit. It just so happened before I even moved to Chicago the year before i moved to chicago i was a broke vandy student trying to do a second degree at vandy didn't know i was going to pay for the you know four thousand dollars for my degree and so vanderbilt says you know what zach if you participate in this research program we're going to send you to a place in Tennessee, and you're going to study the intersections of religion and politics. Mm -hmm. You know where they sent me? Brownsville, Brownsville, Tennessee. Tennessee. Okay, I lived there six weeks. It just so happened I had a friend from college who lived in Brownsville. She was gone the whole summer. I stayed at her house in Brownsville, Tennessee. And then a year later, I go to Chicago, I meet Clay Evans, we have this connection. So it, it was kind a, of
1: sounds like Vanderbilt had a go to hell fun, but they just didn't realize that it and sent them somewhere else. Boom, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it like Zach Eve. Go to hell, nigga. I'm going to Chicago. That's it. <laughs> that's it.
3: So that's right. how that happened. And, wow. you know, it just happened so quick. So it was just the most amazing experience. Wow. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Man, that, that's crazy. So yeah.
1: I guess from there, um, what still enticed you to wanna to write it? I mean, it's one thing for them to tell you this, it's mm-hmm. another thing for you to say, you know what? That's true. They're right. I wanna write it. So what got you to the point of saying, Let's do this?
3: That's true. So and I was I was still working on my mass like my thesis mm-hmm. for my MA at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I'm gonna write a biography, mm-hmm. but also like still write another book length project for my thesis so I can get my degree. So like I talked to a couple mentors and I was like,
1: I don't know. I'm going to I'm gonna have to let him say the, the name of the mentor. Okay,
3: so, so, so I talked to Brad Braxton.
1: Brad yeah. Braxton. I want you all to hear that name. Brad, Brad Braxton. Dr. Dr.
3: Who is now the director of the Center for the Study of um, African-American Religious Life at the Smithsonian. Yes,
1: so yes. A pastor at Riverside he, in New York. Yes. His wife yes. is a monster in her own business to win finance dance Oh, yes.
3: Lizetta absolutely is a brilliant financial mind, um, and Victor Anderson, Victor. Victor. Victor, yeah. Victor, 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 yes, who is a teacher uh, in ethics and, and theological studies at Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. um, so I talked to them, and um, so you're right, like there was all these things, but it was when I started to hear things like Reverend Clay Evans mm-hmm. opened up the doors of his church to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in the mid 60s when lots of black pastors and the whole white elite political power structure there said no we do not want Dr. King here because Dr. King is exposing things and blowing things up and disrupting the status quo. Clay Evans opens up the doors of his church um, and catches hell. From wow. city leaders. There's this, so that this church
1: tried to catch a, uh, go to hell make account, too. They really did. Okay. They really
3: did. So and uh, there's this iconic story that's in chapter thirteen okay. called the Tempest is Raging, now where he's going into, his book into right now, the book so right, you're right
1: sure now. That emphasis is on chapter thirteen, chapter 13.
3: The ahead. Tempest is Raging. Dr. King is a personal friend of Reverend Clay Evans. He he welcomes Dr. King to his church. Clay Evans is in the midst of this building project to build a new sanctuary. And the city leaders warn him, they say, Reverend, if you keep going with Dr. King, we are going to revoke the loans, the building permits. Wow. And he stood with King, they revoked everything. Wow. The sanctuary stayed as steel beams and concrete, just a skeleton for seven years. Wow. It became an iconic story in Chicago. Like everybody in Chicago knows it because it was so embarrassing for Clay Evans. Wow. And Clay Evans would walk outside and and pastors would be standing outside, waiting for him to walk out of the church, laughing at him, talking about him, bullying him. Look what you look what you started; you couldn't finish. Mm. And so this this question about so when you ask me about faith and how do you know? Clay Evans goes through this crisis of like, did I hear right? Like, did I do the right thing? Did I? It cost me so much, and um, still stood with King. And so um, yeah, so so that's that those kinds of stories made me say, history needs to know this. We know a lot of stuff about King. We don't know about Clay Evans, who was the one who made who a forerunner for King, who made a way for King to get a foothold in Chicago. Oh, yeah. You know, wow. King uh, Clay Evans preached Sam Cook's funeral. Mm. Okay, so those kinds of stories when that, I hear. Y- didn't
4: listen, now that's much, I didn't Cook. know. Wait right? a minute.
1: Yes. Cook. Yes. Going right? up? Sam Cook is my Sam, boy. There we go. <laughs> You're talking about somebody that owned his public church.
3: Absolutely. Man, yeah. Look,
1: look, yeah. I'm about to shout. I want to hear go ahead and hear him yes. say this. Yeah. That Cuck, Sam my boy. So
3: Sam Cook, you know, the, the, the controversial you know experience of his murder, you know, his death, and then Clay Evans preaches. His his funeral in Chicago, and I can't it, the quote's in the book, but I can't I, I'll butcher it now. But he says something along the lines of, um, "We need to c- try to live to create a world where the the most important songs of our lives are 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 sung during our lives, not yeah. after our lives, yeah. right? And so that that Ooh. Sam Cook was coming to hear Clay Evans. And and was and, and you know, and I asked Clay. I said, Clay, did you ever record anything with Sammy? He said, No, we never yeah. recorded anything. But oh, um,
2: can you imagine? That's, like, that's right. That's like Snoop with the Clarks. Right. Oh, right? <laughs> but it gets deeper.
3: It gets deeper. So James Cleveland, the father oh, of gospel yeah. music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Clay Evans. Becomes a member of a quartet singing group and James Cleveland is one of the members of the group yep so so and 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 Clay Evans preaches at at, at James Cleveland's funeral I don't know if he was the keynote but he was one of the people that was spoke. So when I hear these kinds of stories where Clay Evans is at the forefront of history, influencing the leaders that are in history books. That's when I said, okay, I need to, I need to write this. I need to be a part of this. Wow. Um, so that, yeah, those kind of stories help me. And the other thing, they're, they're wonderful interviews with Minister Farrakhan and Jesse Jackson. Um, and you get like this, like I said earlier, this country is in the process of we're. we're we're, we're tearing each other apart. We're just so at each other's throats. Clay Evans in the 1960s, 70s, 80s is working with Muslims like yes. Minister Farrakhan mm-hmm. and, and and Jesse Jackson. He's bringing people together. He's a bridge builder. So I think that's something that is what we need to be doing more of today. We need wow. to be bridge building.
1: Wow, that, that, that's, that's great. I want to read a... Um I have more questions about that piece, especially when yeah. you talk about the Muslims. But I mm-hmm. wanna read just what you said. So the name of his book, I mean the name of this chapter, chapter 13, is The Tempest is Raging. And what Reverend uh, Clay Evans says 2011, he says, I was persecuted and talked about. Hmm. Clay, you're a fool joining up with Dr. King. You, you're a fool. We're going to mess you up. I figured they couldn't mess me up no more than the Lord. That is strong and that is heavy yes man that says a lot and then what's funny is the next paragraph which i'm not going to read is from minister lewis fair kind of. so i guess more of my what i want to what i want to hear you describe and talk about uh specifically the situation is right now there's even a um a dc council member that is getting a lot of flack because of the fact that he has given money to uh, Minister Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know for a lot of people that sounds very anti-Semitic sure. um, within that talk. So I just want you to, because you have a quote for Lewis Farrakhan, yeah. I want you to talk about, especially within Chicago, uh, and especially with thinking about his connection to a lot of uh not only Christian ministers but Baptist ministers. Yes. What are your own personal thoughts, especially if you're putting this in your book to say that, hey, you know what? Right. Minister, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, or the Honorable Minister Farrakhan, needs to be heard. Why would mm-hmm. you think that his quote needs
3: to be in this book? Yeah. So it's a really good question, Eric. There, there are a lot of people who have listened to Minister Farrakhan and have um, felt that some, some, of, some, or a lot of his comments are anti-Semitic. Okay. okay. And and um, I, I think that's a valid critique. So I think that that's a discussion that needs to be had. Um, and so Minister Farrakhan is a very um, he, he is a controversial character. You know, he, he um, is, is someone who has said things that have been for many people problematic and that needs to be heard and talked about. Uh, the thing that I find fascinating is when I interviewed him and I interviewed him in person, um, it, it, none of that came up and it, it, I interviewed him, the, the, the context of the interview was years ago when do you remember, um, this must have been four or five years ago when there was a new Muslim mosque that was being built in Murfreesboro. mm -hmm. And then there were people that that burned construction Mm -hmm. equipment. Okay.
1: Mr. Farrakhan came to the church that I I was a member of, Jefferson Street church. He came twice. Wow. Uh, Reverend James Tex Thomas uh, make sure that that Minister Faircon was heard. So I definitely have an interest in the story.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So so there was a lot of anti there were there were a lot of what I'm presuming that were Christians mm-hmm. that were burning construction mm. equipment of the Muslim mosque. Okay, so and um so that was happening at about the same time, a couple months after uh, that happened, then I interviewed Minister Faircon. So it was still in the national news. And um yeah, and so um, there was all this conversation about, oh, uh, you know, Muslims, terrorists, and, you know, Christians are superior and all of this kind of thing. And I was like, well, when I interviewed Minister Farrakhan, we didn't talk about any of that. We, he, what his thing was, was he emphasized how Clay Evans was a bridge builder, mm-hmm. how Clay Evans was a man of integrity. Um, and so that's what the conversation really centered around. So I I, I do think it's important for us to have conversations about Whatever we find controversial about Minister Farrakhan, that's fine. We can talk about that. But, but what? The, the, but Minister Farrakhan does have a lot of incredibly insightful things to say about Absolutely. systematic racism. Okay, he has a lot of insightful things to say about internalized racism, mm-hmm. self-hatred. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a lot of very important things to say about that. And that conversation with with about the book was it was about bringing people together mm. it was about finding ways to celebrate um, the beauty of traditions yeah. and in that conversation I heard more ecumenical celebrating mm. other kinds of traditions mm. so I in, in at least in that interview there was nothing anti-semitic about that interview it was about finding beauty in traditions and I don't know, maybe Farrakhan has evolved over time. I don't know, but like it's it's at least in that conversation, it was all about celebrating diversity. Yeah. It was all about bringing people together. Um, so so that's you know, that's why I think fin- Farrakhan needs to be heard. That's why I've put mm-hmm. his quotes in the book mm-hmm. is because we have a person from the Islamic faith, the Muslim tradition. and and in this country, there's a lot of tension for for Christians and Muslims. Mm -hmm. And and Farrakhan in this book is not talking about the divisions, he's talking about the opportunities to connect. Mm -hmm. So that's why those quotes exist here. So how do you feel,
1: how do you feel about mm -hmm. uh, Minister Farrakhan, especially from your background of talking about, of having white parents, Mm -hmm. of having uh, uh, Mm I think you said an Asian brother. Yes. um, uh, Also a white brother. Uh, With that diversity that you have, what I wish many of us had that type of experience of yeah. having so many cultures to think about. What does that even mean for you? Because you selected him to be in your book.
3: Yes, so I think that um, if, if Farrakhan and I were to sit down together and talk about the whole history of his talks, his theology, he and I probably would have some points of disagreement. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know where he is today, because okay. um, it's been some years since I've interviewed him, yep. but um, I, I'm sure he and I would have points of disagreement. But that, that kind of speaks to my story, where my story is one where I I, I value disagreement. Now I don't I don't value denigrating other traditions. Mm. I do not value devaluing other traditions. Right. And so, um, but I, I I do think that for you know it it's not a deal breaker if, if we disagree yeah. on, on issues, mm-hmm. and and so um, so I think yeah I just I think that that's kind of how I look at, at, at Farrakhan. Was there another part of that question? So I there, oh, there was, you're, you're yeah, so yeah. So it was, um, as I think about my story, um, the thing that I wanted, we didn't have time, but the thing that I really wanted to get into, I did tell him after the interview, I wanted to get into my story because I was curious to hear how he would react to a biracial kid, yeah. half black, half white, who has white parents, who has this multiracial family, yeah. if he knew who the kid was that was interviewing him. I wanted to know how he would react. We yeah. didn't get into that. Mm. So I would like to have known that, but um, I did say, you know Murfreesboro, and you know what's Oh, he's like, oh, you're from Murfreesboro. So we had a really wonderful conversation about that. Very briefly after the interview, where he said, um, you know, he said, you know, it's not about Christian and Muslim. It's about brotherhood. It's about Mm -hmm. sisterhood. It's about being together. It's about connecting. So that was something that. Is life-giving, and it's you know he has said public things that, that can you know people have said are anti-Semitic, and we can talk about that. But at least in those moments, for me, um, there was a it was a it was more the person of Louis Farrakhan, and um, there were no cameras around you know other than the one that we were using, and so it just felt there was more of an, like an authenticity. That I think that we saw more of the person and complexity of of Minister Farrakhan. That it, it, when you're up in front of thousands of people,
4: yeah.
3: you know, I, you know, I don't know. There's there's just a pressure. There's a performance. There's you know, and who knows what? It, I don't who there's n, I, there's no way I can know what Eric believes. There's no way I can know what you, you know. And you know, but you know, I think in those kind of moments, that's why I appreciated the the the, the intimacy, at least what I perceived, and that's why I put that in the book. Um, he he was honoring the other part is that he was honoring his elder Clay Evans, mm. and celebrating his struggles, celebrating his sacrifices, mm. and this was a Muslim that was doing this in the midst of a uh, context years ago when Christians were tearing Muslims apart. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I don't know. But again, like Clay Evans and Minister Farrakhan are thick as thieves. Mm. And Clay Evans and Dr. King were were personal friends. So it, it, the way that the history books play things out, it's not always as black and white as we think. Right. And yeah. there are things happening behind the scenes that we know not of. Yeah. Uh, Minister Farrakhan came to Clay Evans' house um, for that interview, you know. And um, so it's just, and then you wonder. How often has the, have these kind of conversations happened yeah. when no one else knew, yeah. and what were they talking about? And there was this famous conversation that, that um, well it's not famous, but Clay Evans told me, there was a time when um, Clay said to me, Re- excuse me, Reverend Evans said to me that Jesse Jackson and, and Minister Farrakhan had some kind of beef mm-hmm. when the, the, the Million Man March was going on. Mm-hmm. There was some kind of thing happening about power or ego, and it was Clay Evans that sat them both down wow. and said, here's how this should go.
4: Yeah.
3: Wow. So so the things that we see play out during the footage of the Million Man March, Clay Evans is in the background that was influencing how that looked.
4: Wow.
3: So so that, those, are, those are the kind of stories that made me want to, you know, That's correct. yeah, That's so. Great.
1: Since you kind of got into your book, man, let's just go ahead and get to it. All and, right. What is The Last Blues Preacher
3: about? <laughs> the Last Blues Preacher is about, the son of sharecroppers who grew up in rural Tennessee with very few advantages and a very negative picture of himself. Mm. And this young man goes to Chicago and finds a way to tap into the, the pains, the hurts, the traumas of people a lot of Southern people that moved north and found a way to connect with them and move them beyond the blues to something life-giving and it's called the gospel. And so it's a story about a gospel singer that wanted to be a secular singer Mm -hmm. that somehow became a gospel preacher and became this unwavering advocate of civil rights. Um, so, so it's, it's the story of someone who shouldn't have been anything, mm. but found a way to help others tap into all of their gifts and 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 potential, wow. and um, to to challenge systems of injustice. So yeah, so that, that's a the short way to describe it. Um, but you know, the thing that connects with me and Clay is that. It, if, the first couple of chapters about his struggle to love himself. The struggles to he yeah. he couldn't speak words until he was he never spoke any words until he was almost three. He wow. had something happening that wow. he he didn't speak wow. until he was almost three. He couldn't wow. he was mute, wow. mute. This this man who is now one of the most famous gospel singers in this country who who walked with King was mute, um, and so the first couple of chapters talk about his struggle to love himself. The struggle to see himself as, you know, equal to others. And so it's, this is a story about someone who had profound blues and somehow, some someway um, saw beyond them. Wow. Saw beyond them and then helped other people see beyond their blues. And, and, uh-huh. in, and in Chicago in the 1960s,
0: lots of black folk had lots of some blues. blues lots it. of blues, <laughs> yeah. right? Oh, and man. so, yeah. I
1: definitely want to get into uh, the, your definition of blues. Yeah. Which I think I have saw a little bit, but I don't want to go there just yet. Um, I'm going to ask this first part of the question and what that is, and I know Nikki has a question too. Mm-hmm. Um, how strong of a connection do you two have? And I guess what did you glean from him? Because a lot of the things that you just said about him sounds like a lot of the things of yourself as well. So I definitely want to hear that connection between you and uh, Reverend Clay.
3: Yeah, it, it's very strong mm-hmm. because the more that we talked, the more that he shared, and the more that I heard, the more that I shared – we, we learned that we were very similar, very insecure young men yeah. growing up in the South, not too far away from each other in Tennessee, right. um, from where each where we grew up. Yeah. Um, we had a lot of connections in terms of like the struggles that we had. So that was very strong we were interviewing each other. And um, I think that's why he felt he went to some very real places. Yeah. Like, and I say in the book, there is a moment When I was like, when I would watch Clay Evans, this famous black powerful preacher, when I would ask him about Brownsville, he would morph.
4: Mm.
3: He would morph into this larger than life, C.L. Franklin friend Mm. walking with, Dr. King walking Mm. with, you know, he would morph into that amazing grand preacher to a scared, introverted, young man. I could see it. And to see him pause for 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, and then cry. There's a point where I said this is maybe not what we should be doing. Like I don't know that this is, there's sometimes where you think that um, people burying past traumatic experiences can be therapeutic and, and and sometimes it is. Those were moments where I was like this is, I don't know that this is any good for anybody. You know, he's reliving these things that are clearly traumatic to him. And it's, it feels sometimes exploitative, wow. like I'm exploiting his pain. Yeah. And so, yeah, there were those moments where I had to question whether or not this was an, uh, an ethical th- project. So, um, so, so, yeah, so, so, so we, yeah, we, we talked about those kinds of stories. That, those are where we could connect. Um, and that's where I was like, oh my God, like someone like Clay Evans, who did all these things and walked with, walked with the, the leaders and mentors that I had as a kid that I never met, but met in history books. This is a guy that walked with them, but this guy can relate to me, like knows what it's like to be bullied and knows what it's like to not feel you know, like you have many friends. Um, and um, I could relate to that. So, so that connection was very strong. Yeah. During the the interview process, um, so so that bond is very strong, and um, yeah, so so I think that during the interview process, as we learned more about each other, it, it was like I learned like I was so so similar to him, and um, so that yeah, so so we we really had a really rich connection there that we there was a lot of vulnerability, yeah. and as he would share those kinds of things, I would share more of my story. Mm-hmm. And the part, I'm, I'll be honest, look, the part that like, I was really weirded out and scared about was I wasn't quite sure if he knew my story. And I was like, does he know I'm biracial? I have all this multifamily situation going. Would this change how he perceives his biographer? Like, if he knows my story, does this change like, oh, well, I don't think you can tell my story the way it needs to be you know, told. Cause he wanted he wanted a black Baptist pastor you know minister okay I fit yeah. that description but he didn't know my whole story and so um, I remember I never forget the day that I told him and it never I was so scared because I was like is he gonna say okay bye mm-hmm. but it, it, it didn't matter mm-hmm. and and um, I should have known that it wouldn't matter but but yeah so the bond is real because the vulnerability that that he shared and I, it was reciprocal. It was reciprocal, yeah, yeah.
2: How long um, did it take you, or what was the whole writing process from, um, you know, conducting interviews? um, I want to ask that, um, that how long, the length of the process, and then also, um, what was like, was there a moment Or what was the moment that stands out the most that just kind of made your Mm. your jaw drop? You know, like, it was just like, whoa, did he say this? Or this actually happened? Wow.
3: Okay, really good question. So the writing process was, I would meet with him about once a week. Okay, okay, at his house or at his daughter's house. And we'd interview each other for, it was like, he would interview me. So I say, we interview each other. I'd ask him questions. He'd ask me (laughs) questions. So, for about um one to two hours each week and then um i would just take notes i would record stuff Mm -hmm. um but my process was i wouldn't really write anything i would just kind of take notes record things and then um it was probably like about six months after the interviews started that i started like writing stuff Mm. and so like i was like oh shit like i i gotta start getting things down to paper. So I never forget, I I was living in Chicago Hyde Park. I went to um, Starbucks on 53rd Street in South Woodlawn every Saturday morning, got the same drink, I'd bring it back to my apartment, (laughs) and I would spend the next seven hours writing. And I did that for about six, seven months. And so that was kind of my process. Six, seven months of listening, journaling, and then six, seven months of just hardcore writing. Um, and then the moment where I said, so w- w- the question was like the moment where I was just like,
2: yeah, that just blew your mind, like just kind of. There,
3: there were a couple of those moments. One of those moments were, was when I went to his church, Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church, mm-hmm. and he arranged for me to interview several people. One of those people was Minister Farrakhan on the phone. So I went into this office. Clay Evans sits in front of me. I'm behind a desk, he's sitting in front of me, and he gives me Minister Farrakhan's phone number. I call Minister Farrakhan, I'm talking to Minister Farrakhan, it's the most amazing interview on the phone. 10, 30 minutes later, I see this dark figure walk into the room, I don't know because I'm so engaged in this interview, and then I look up and it's Jesse Jackson. Mm. So Jesse Jackson comes over and stands next to me and holds his hand out saying, Give, give me the phone. So, well, what am I going to do? Like, I got to hand right. the phone to Jesse Jackson, right? So, and then Jesse Jackson and Minister Faircom begin to have this really humorous conversation. I know because I can hear both of them laughing, but I don't know what they're talking about. And all of a sudden then Jesse Jackson hangs up the phone. I was like, oh, I wasn't done. And so that, that was one moment where I was like, Clay Evans is the kind of person that can bring those kinds of people together. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see. You know, another moment is um, there were. There, I mean, there were so many. There were just. Here's how I can sum it up: Every single time I went anywhere in Chicago, I went to City Hall. Everything stopped. Doors opened. Mm. I went to all kinds of places, and everything literally stopped. Those are those kind of jaw-dropping moments where I was like. This is a, this is a person that has, that shaped the city of Chicago.
2: Now, um, Reverend Clay Evans, um, did he start Friendship um, fellowship? Rather? He fellowship. did. Okay. He
3: founded Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church in 1950. Wow. And he stayed there from 1950 to 2000, 50 years. And uh, Charles Jenkins is there now and they have a good relationship. So yeah, he was there 50 years, 50 years. Um, transformed gospel ministry, radio broadcasts, television ministry of gospel music, so.
2: Yeah, I think I wanted to kind of like, because a lot of listeners might not know right. who Clay Evans is. Right. Uh, I know because my parents were, you know. Yes, yes. Uh, yes. And being from the Midwest, you just, you, you knew Clay Evans and That's who right. he was. Uh, but a lot of our listeners might not be uh, very familiar with him. Right. Um, but, um, and I, I hear you saying like he shaped chicago Hmm. uh met with dr king yep i I think it's for me this is the most interesting thing that this this pillar this this giant would allow and i don't want to call you a novice
3: i was yeah right i was and am
2: yes (laughs) i think that is the i mean if you're gonna authorize a biography of yourself and that he saw enough in you to say hey yeah Little light-skinned guy. Yes. (laughs) I don't care (laughs) that you. Come write this biography of me. I think that says so much about this man. Um, It it gives me such a newfound respect for him that not only... um, Because, I mean, a biography, I don't want to say self-serving, but, of course, it's preserving your legacy in a sense, right? Absolutely. But to be able to affirm you within that as Mm -hmm. well, um, it just says a lot. Um,
4: Yeah.
3: Yeah. You know, I, yeah, I think I think Clay that's what I thought was really strange and interesting and, and really helpful about him is that he could have said, I'm Clay Evans.
2: Yeah. I'm gonna
3: get a Pulitzer pl- prize winning writer. Yeah, because write my, my brother said that. Mm-hmm. He was like,
2: you know, Zach is writing a uh, Clay Evans biography. I was like, Zach Mills? We don't know who <laughs> who, who the hell
4: who the hell is that? <laughs> 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 well,
3: Yes. 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 And I, I,
1: I gotta say this because Nikki said this though because my mentor is also one of Zach's mentors, Victor Anderson. Yes. Victor. And Victor talks so highly, and I'm telling you, even though I knew Zach, we did not know each other that well. Right. And, and Victor talks so highly about what Zach was doing. He he approved it so much, mm. and the fact that he was so so supportive. Mm-hmm. Of what of what Zach was doing made me more interested. So I was just so happy to hear from uh, Nikki's brother Napoleon mm-hmm. about the fact that he wants to actually uh, come on our show mm-hmm. to talk about this this book because of the fact of people that I respect so much, uh, uh, and I also know how they can talk about people uh, when they don't like them. Yes, definitely spoke <laughs> yes. highly of how you wrote this book, and were killing the content of this book. So that says so much to where it wasn't like we should value, that he should value us to be on our show. It was more the fact that we should value the fact that he had have the time wow. to be on our show to talk about this content and for us to just listen. And, I, and I'm going to also say this, too, is the fact that Zach, in my own personal head has did probably one of the top two interviews, that we wow. did, and I, and I don't like uh, judging interviews, but I will definitely say the only other people that I thought were we, me, Nikki, and Dakari, did our job so well this. with the interview was Anasa Troutman, wow. Landis yes. Brezel uh, um, with that piece. And, and, and hearing that definitely talk about this is just, wow. I, I feel very, and I don't like using this word because it, it pisses me off when black folk music hmm. because it, it kind of yeah. says like, you know what, I got to pretend that I'm humble, but when we're honored and humbled, I'm definitely honored for the fact that Zach is on our show talking about this brilliant book and talking about the experience and talking about his own context that -hmm. got us to the point of even hearing about the last uh, Blues Preacher. That's Mm -hmm. just wonderful. I want to thank you definitely for that.
4: Well,
3: thanks. Absolutely.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm... yeah, this is dope. so. Talk. Let's talk about
2: blues. Mm-hmm. Let's talk you know, about the blues. Let's talk about the blues. My grandparents were very influential now. in my my upbringing, mm-hmm. and uh, my mm-hmm. granddad. Yes. Uh, was a blues connoisseur. Yes. I mean, He loved the blues. I, I mean, I remember. I, I guess, BB King might have been his favorite. hmm But that was like Johnny Walker What is Johnny Walker? And, right. Uh, Bobby Blueblad
4: might have yeah, been. You, yeah, Come on, you man. don't go nowhere until listen, you
1: about <laughs> Bobby Blueblad. It's still in my phone. I hey, still Blue. play the blues. Hey, now, look, B, <laughs> my, my pastor and also another pastor, I'm not going to call his name just to be nice, has told me that they can't listen to worship music because they get too excited about church. But when they do listen to music, they listen mm. to Bobby Blueblad. Come on, now. So uh, we'll go ahead and, with what Nikki just said That's about good. where to go from here. That's good. So, tell us about the blues. Oh, the blues, I want to be the, the blues, blues in your right yeah. The blues, the blues. <laughs> shout out, know,
3: shout out. <laughs> My goodness. The, you know, there's so much to say about the blues. You know, I think the, the thing that's the most amazing thing about the blues is that the blues, when we were talking about earlier the crisis of black faith, you know, you asked me about that. You asked me about what's the, what, where's the black faith? I said, it's kind of a crisis of dishonesty. And, and um, I, I think that's the kind of good news of the blues. The blues mm. allows you to just say it how it is. Yeah. Wow. The blues allows you to just name the pain, name the the trauma, the dysfunction. Okay, it just, you just, you gotta get it out. Okay, so, so I was about to use a scripture, but I don't want to. I don't want to sound so holy. So, 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 use. All right. So, I I can't remember. Uh, It's in the Psalms. So, like, it's it's. um, Let's see. It is when we're talking about um, the people of Israel. So they're at captivity, and um, there there is this scene in which. They're saying we're going to dash your babies against the rocks, Mm
1: -hmm. right? Yeah, that's um, Psalm. Is
3: it 137?
1: 37 is what I want
3: to say. Okay, 37 or 137, something like that.
1: Throwing your, throwing your kids against the pricks. That's right.
3: That's right. That's right. So, so we're there. We're singing. It's 137. And and yeah, yeah, and then our captors asked for our songs. And, sing. and it's right, and and so they're like it's passive aggressive, like mm. oh, oh, hey, hey, we got you, it's, we we you are our prisoners. Hey, sing us one mm. of those sing us mm. one of those freedom songs. I don't know if y'all sing, actually sing.
1: saw the five heartbeats when they said sing. sing you one of them songs. There we go in the car, and they had them pulled over. And that's exactly what I think about when I think about one That's of exactly songs, right. But then also what Zach is hitting on mm. is just the fact of. You can't get away from this regardless. No. I mean, you know, truthfully, I, I'm trying to get away from talking about scripture. Right. But the truth of the matter is, right. these stories pull you in yeah. about how can we sing our song? That's it. Especially in America, especially as black folk, especially as being enslaved, yes. especially as being oppressed, yes. especially as being Come shot on down now. by Come on how now. How can we sing our song Come on now. <laughs> in a strange land?
3: There we go. So it all ties back to what we we're talking about. Mm. We we feel like we don't fit. We mm. feel like foreigners. Okay. Right. 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 So, right, it's so, right, right. so we <laughs> we we're all searching for these sacred texts yes, sir. Yeah. Yes, sir. that make us feel like we belong. That make mm. us you know feel connected. And so yeah, like so, the blues. I, I think of those scriptures when I think of the blues, because these captors that had these people with their boot on their throat looking down on them saying now sing us one of those songs of zion okay looking down on them and and yet they and yet and yet as we think about our ancestors in this country yes, they, they 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 sing these songs they sing they subvert they here here's the best way I can describe summarize what uh, um, that kind of subversive act, where where captors are looking down on us, yes, saying, "Sing us. Black Panther." Mm. Okay, anybody who's seen Black Panther, is a scene in which they're in the throne room, mm. begging for help for one of the outpost tribes, and the white man gets a little, you know, you know, get a little confident and, and, and is trying to argue his case and what happens what there there we go there we go there we go there's a barking there's a barking and that barking is an intervention it's an interruption into the song of white supremacy into the dominant narrative the dominant script
2: the dominant
3: there we go right come on now there is this dominant script
2: yes sir that is
3: been perpetuated and inserted into different communities and individuals. The barking interrupts it. Yeah. The barking suppresses it. Yes, the barking, yeah. So, yeah. so, so, the, yeah. You know, uh, you guys got me all messed up in here. You know, so. bark, <laughs> <laughs>
1: shit. Yes, the <laughs> <are> <laughs> <laughs>
2: You, guys, you know you're talking with a single yes man here barking.
3: Yes, sir. Oh man. I'm going to church Sunday and bark the shit. So so the bark. You know, yes.
2: I bark. Listen, I'm going to Hendersonville,
1: Tennessee, and bark at these damn white people. Bark, <laughs> bark. Yes, sir. Go on, Zach. Go, keep on going. Out, yeah. don't, don't mind us, don't mind us. Let's see, what, what, what else were you
3: we talking about here? Let's, let's okay.
1: So I, I do gotta bring this up. So who are your influences with the writing? And because I asked these yeah. questions, because when I think about the metaphor of blues, I think about Houston Baker. I think about yes. Cornel West. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely wanna think about who are your influences of your definition of blues. Yes. And also your definition of blues within the Christian faith, the Christian context,
4: but also